This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Most of you are familiar with the work of Doctors Without Borders. Perhaps you've been more aware of them in recent years from hearing about their facilities serving in conflict zones in Afghanistan and Syria being hit by bombs, killing patients and staff. In Afghanistan, by American bombing, claimed to be a mistake. In Syria, by what U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry said were Syrian government forces striking deliberately. Doctors Without Borders has been around for some time, born in France in 1971 as Médecins Sans Frontières. You probably have the idea that they are doctors from all over the world providing care and treatment in these war-torn regions and sites where disease or disaster have wreaked havoc. And that's sort of it. But Doctors Without Borders head of mission, Suzanne Ceresco, explained more of it to me when she visited us in New Mexico. We talked, by the way, after the Afghan hospital bombing, but before the Syrian hospital bombing. She said that the organization normally tries to draft 90% of their hospital's staff from local labor sources. And they wanted to go even further with that local hiring trend in conflict-ridden Syria, where Suzanne was assigned in 2013. And that hiring goal hit a bit of a snag in this way. Applying for a job working as a doctor in that part of Syria wasn't something that anyone wanted to do. People had been kidnapped. People had been imprisoned. Doctors had been killed. Doctors in particular were being targeted in that environment. What's your understanding of why particularly they were targeted? Because the war became very politicized and helping patients who had served in another role Mm. um, wasn't, medical ethics weren't honored. Yeah. So applying an apolitical oath of medical care. Yeah, following following Mm. medical ethics was politicized Mm -hmm. in that context. So we started to spread the word locally, because uh, we'd done what we normally do uh, through our regular networks to advertise uh, this position. We started speaking to local community leaders and asking if anyone knew a doctor, and we weren't able to find one. And we were seeing more and more people arriving into this IDP camp, internally displaced people in the north of the country, What does it mean when you classify them as internally displaced? So internally displaced people are people who haven't crossed an international border. But they've Uh, been moved from their homes. But they've been moved from their homes, yeah. So Mm -hmm. once you cross an international, this is the very simple way to put it, but essentially once you've crossed an international border, you should be recognized as a refugee. And when you're displaced within your own country, you're considered an uh, internally displaced person or an IDP. Mm, okay. And um, oftentimes IDPs can face additional challenges because they're not afforded the same status that refugees. Okay. And uh, it was the first time that I thought that I was potentially going to fail at a, a mission that I'd been assigned to because we always managed to find a way to reach the people that we need to reach and to do what we need to do. And then what happened was that the chemical attacks occurred 200 miles to the south of us, outside of Damascus. And even though we were far away, 
it became clear that that could happen anywhere in the country. And the towns near where I was working went into days of formal mourning. And I, the staff had to explain to me what was happening, why the shops were closed and there was no one in the street. And it was during this time that a retired doctor who was living near the camp came forward and, and applied. In spite of the risks, he said he didn't want to stay at home any longer and be in his garden. And the people who worked in the camp got a doctor who had 40-plus years of experience. The bravery of our staff in Syria is just incredible. And I've heard from our staff in Syria that he's still working there. And these ambulance drivers and doctors and nurses and cleaners, uh, my colleagues in Syria, uh, I'm, I'm just in awe of what they do and their commitment to medical ethics. And uh, we have staff like that all over the world. I'm speaking directly to our Syrian mm-hmm. staff because I got to know a number of them when I was working there. But uh, there's moments like that that really stick right. out for me. And I, I don't think people think about this too much. What we've been talking about is the politicizing of the availability of health professionals to address oftentimes political atrocities that are making these places flashpoints. This is really a big part of Doctors Without Borders needs is to be able to go in there and mobilize and find the people who, as you say, largely are local. But it's not always easy because I'll bet in a lot of these missions, this is an issue, right? Yeah, and it's become a larger issue in the last 10 years Mm -hmm. where humanitarian space isn't being respected and the Geneva Convention isn't being respected. And we said this following the bombing of our hospital in Kunduz that war has rules. And to be able to work in these places, we need to have safe medical spaces. And these spaces are essential in these areas where population have needs that aren't being addressed. Sometimes we're the only medical organization that's able to operate in these areas. And we need to be able to do that. Well, you're here in our home headquarters of New Mexico to speak with some audiences, and I know it's a difficult conversation to have, but I'm sure when you get in front of people, they are asking you about this October 3rd, 2015 uh, bombing in Afghanistan where 42 people were killed, 30 were injured. Where were you when you heard that news? I was in the Philippines working as a head of mission, and I was, of course, saddened and shocked and appalled, as all my colleagues were. But the other thing that I saw very quickly, a a few days following that, I was at the national uh, monthly meeting of the different national NGOs and international NGOs, and the outpouring of compassion from our counterparts and the impact that they felt that this attack made on their own work and on humanitarian space 
was was profound because everyone needs to have safe humanitarian space to be able to do the work that MSF and so many other organizations are doing. This has got to be the worst case of carnage in your organization's history. It is. Yeah. You spoke to this a, a moment ago, but let me ask the question this way. Regardless of the ongoing legal outcomes of this event, what can be said about the lessons of this incident? What we're hoping is that we can get assurances from all parties that we're able to continue our work in conduce and provide the essential medical services that we were providing in that area, and that we can work safely, of course, in Afghanistan and all over the world. Because generically, you are going into places where war is still actively happening, uh, in, in many cases, not in every case, mm-hmm. but in, in very many cases. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges I, I, I'm seeing is, is, is that you can say that you're not political, uh, but you do, there must be an effort to communicate and connect with the warring parties to identify facilities purpose, clarity about your mission, why you're there, that's a big part of the logistical challenge, isn't it? And, and, and part of the challenge is, is, is sort of outreach to all sides regardless of politics, regardless of who's right and who's wrong or whose side are you on. Or Well, it, it, and a really important part of our operations and an important Part of my work when I've worked as a project coordinator and working as a head of mission is communicating our neutrality to all parties involved in a conflict and to the population and to all of the the different local authorities. Mm -hmm. And how do you do that in in certain ways? Just examples of how do you connect? Sure. We make sure that we're speaking to everyone regularly and... Uh, that everyone knows that we see patients at our hospital and also by the quality and the consistency of our medical care, by being very transparent uh, about the services that we're providing and that we that we see everyone. So mm-hmm. in line, of course, with the rules of the Geneva Convention, but also um, like a hospital in the U.S., if a patient turns up at an emergency room, they aren't asked what they were doing before. People are, are given medical services, and it's, it's very transparent. So we operate in a very transparent way, but also making sure that we're regularly communicating with everyone about what we're doing. Does it happen sometimes that you are trying to connect with some faction in a war-torn area where they say, yeah, we don't care. We don't care what you're doing. It's not, we're not going to honor that. In those kind of cases, that would be an area where we would be unable to work. So we can't work in places where our medical space wouldn't be Hmm. respected and um, the services that we want to provide to the population wouldn't be respected. That's what was so shocking about this Afghan situation. Yeah. Yeah. So don't get me wrong with this question, sure. but I would imagine, because mm-hmm. I was moved, mm-hmm. that that bombing 
in Afghanistan of your facility must have represented a sad but true uptick in awareness of what you're doing and in support for what you're doing. Is that true? Definitely. I can tell you while I've been on this tour that so many of our supporters have expressed incredible compassion towards our organization and towards the the loss of our colleagues and our patients and our caretakers. And we're definitely very moved to hear that 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 recognition of of this difficult event for our organization. Thank yeah. you. So Doctors Without Borders began in 1971, and then nearly 30 years of work helped it earn the international reputation and recognition of uh, winning the 1999 Nobel Peace Prize. How do you envision that uh, Doctors Without Borders work links to peacemaking or peacekeeping uh, in, in such a way as that the Nobel Award might be awarded to it? Well, Sometimes I do like to refer to the, the speech that James Orbinski gave, who was our president at the time when we were awarded the prize. And he does say that humanitarian action is more than simple generosity and simple charity. It aims to build spaces of normalcy in the midst of what is abnormal. Mm-hmm. So in the areas that I've worked in that have been areas of conflict, I have seen the services that we provide as as essential havens in in those areas that uh, medical structures and medical services are to be provided to everyone regardless of what the context is and where they live so um our work is purely humanitarian in that in that sense mm-hmm. But when I think about it, I think of the hierarchy of needs, Maslow's mm-hmm. hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. which puts health right on the mm-hmm. you know, bottom line. Mm-hmm. And that uh, if there is ever going to be peace of mind, you know, mm-hmm. peace in the world, that you have to address those basic needs mm-hmm. of shelter and mm-hmm. health. Yeah. And, and, and certainly that is the mission, mm-hmm. as I understand it, of Doctors Without Borders is mm-hmm. you find a, a need that is disruptive to a population on a very basic mm-hmm. level mm-hmm. and start working it. Yeah, but we definitely view that work as, as purely humanitarian. Mm-hmm. And another part of Dr. Urbinski's uh, speech, he said that silence has long been confused with neutrality and has been presented as a necessary condition for humanitarian action. From its beginning, MSF was created in opposition to this assumption. And I think this is something that's important for those of us who work in the field with the organization is to know that we do have that opportunity to speak out when it's appropriate and when it's justified. And, and that's something else that we can do as part of the, the, the service that we offer to the patients who we provide care to. Mm-hmm. And, but in a very real way, once mm-hmm. you decide on a mission, mm-hmm. I would think you would want the world to know uh, where you're working and what the need is and why you're there. And so I would guess that the Nobel Prize offers a platform 
for that in a way that is both helpful to the population where you're working and for your work in general. It certainly it is, and it's given us the opportunity to speak out and to be heard on larger issues. Suzanne Ceresco served for many years as a Doctors Without Borders field coordinator, serving with the humanitarian organization in South Sudan, in Syria, Ethiopia, Laos, Malawi, and elsewhere. Her title is now head of mission, and she joined the organization in 2008. Interestingly, to me anyway, she worked for filmmaker John Sayles' production company for a number of years, too. Doctors Without Borders was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1999. So what took you from work in film to work in international health and this particular humanitarian organization? So uh, I had followed the work of Doctors Without Borders for many years, and my boss in the film business, John Sales, and his partner, Maggie Renzi, were donors. When I had the opportunity, I was a small donor, so we got a lot of materials, and, and we were aware of what Doctors Without Borders was doing in the field. And when I decided to leave the film business, I wanted to shift into work that was service-oriented. So initially, I went to work for the Nation Institute, which is a media nonprofit, but shortly thereafter, I found out that Doctors Without Borders recruits administrators and recruits logisticians. And so I went to an information session. And when they found out that I worked in the film business, they were keen to have me apply to work as a logistician because the work is similar to what they do. So when you're on location with a movie, you're mm. problem solving, you're setting up very quickly and, of course, liaising with the local authorities. And during our large response to different emergencies, we we move in quickly, we problem solve, and the skills are, are really useful. For the organization, we're doing supply. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of medicine in our projects where we're doing big malnutrition efforts. We have a lot of food that we need to sure. move. Well, I can imagine. I mean, it's all it's all scheduling, it's coordination, it's facilities, it's all of these things. It's that. And then transport is a big issue as well. So we're moving those supplies, but we're also moving staff and we're moving patients. And sometimes we're doing this in areas where there's very little infrastructure. There'll be a lot of logistical challenges. We use boats, helicopters, Horses, donkeys, camels, cars, planes, you, right. you name it. Yeah, whatever's right. appropriate to the context. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we're involved in security for our projects as well. More with Suzanne Ceresco, head of mission with Doctors Without Borders, right after a short break. This is Peace Talks Radio.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls, today with Suzanne Ceresco, who is head of mission of Doctors Without Borders, the Nobel Peace Prize winning international organization that mobilizes to support and maintain hospital facilities in regions of the world ravaged by war, disease, or natural disaster. So the organization was founded in 1971 by a group of doctors and journalists who wanted to establish an emergency medical organization that was also able to speak out when they saw obstacles to medical care. And it started in France, is that right? Oh, it started in France, but we're really all over the world now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's an international organization. So that makes it an NGO? We are yeah. we are an NGO. We What's are. the difference between NGO and nonprofit organization? Is a nonprofit organization just an American designation for a certain type of group? That's how I've experienced it, mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, that nonprofit is something that's used in the U.S. I haven't heard it used in right. Europe. NGO is non-governmental organization. Non-governmental organization. Um, the distinction that I have heard in some countries is an INGO and an NGO. So international non-governmental organization and then a non-governmental organization that can be a, a national mm-hmm. organization. Okay. Yeah. And, and so I guess Doctors Without Borders would be an IGNO. I-N-G-O. I- I-N-G-O. Yeah, but commonly, <laughs> yeah, practitioners, everyone's referring to them as, as NGOs, but yeah. Okay, and doctors and other health professionals who work on these missions around the world, how do they come to the work? Are they all volunteers? Uh, do they sign up for something that we think of like as a, a Peace Corps type term? Uh, how does it work? So we have all kinds of different doctors who are working with us. So uh, first of all, I should mention our national staff. So nine out of every 10 workers with our organization are hired in the countries where we're working. So 90% of our core staff are local to where to, to where the projects are based. And we have a number of doctors who we hire in those contexts when they're doctors available. Okay, I'll, let me pause you there because sure. that's very important yeah. logistically and for yeah. trust issues. Right? Yeah, yeah, we're working. Tell, tell me more about that, though. Sure, so it's essential for our relationships with the community, for understanding the context and, and the the uh, specific health issues and, and, and people's in, interpretation of those within the local community, it's it's invaluable to our work. How are uh, missions chosen? So there are a lot of different ways. Um, certainly uh, an example of a uh, way that we decide to open a mission is when something like uh, Typhoon Haiyan strikes the Philippines. We can decide very quickly uh, based on our experience and then based on the scale of the natural disaster that uh, we'll need to response and we'll need to launch a response and we have supply centers based around the world that are able to get planes in the air and on their way uh, to those locations where we need to do a response. So certainly things that are happening in the news but then we also are at different times invited to uh, to look at opening a project to do an assessment. Last year when I was working in the Philippines, we had a call from one of the ministers of health in Mindanao who asked us to 
come down and do an assessment regarding population displacements that they had there related to conflict. So we were able to send a doctor, and I also went and, and to have a a look and, and to do an assessment to see what would be an appropriate response. So when we go to these areas, we go directly to the population that's affected and try to see where they're living, what the conditions are. But then we also liaise with local authorities, other organizations, health centers and hospitals to see what the needs are. Um, A lot of times we'll be working inside of a country and we'll be working with health clinics or have relationships with health clinics in different parts of the country. And we'll get calls about uh, possible epidemics or outbreaks that, that they're seeing. So We'll, we'll take a look and, and investigate. So there are a number of ways that we decide to mm-hmm. to open projects. I read somewhere uh, where it was suggested that in some ways Doctors Without Borders tries outside of responding to a typhoon, like you said, but mm-hmm. tries to find health issues and need where the news is not being reported. Absolutely. So we're responding to a number of under reported uh, emergencies, underreported health needs. Um, For example, sleeping sickness or working with Chagas disease, uh, working with TB, multi-drug resistant TB in different areas where those kind of diseases and and, and the health needs that are associated with them aren't being addressed. So there are other health-oriented NGOs and projects. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Carter Center is one. I mean, Red Cross, Project Hope, all of these people that do work similar to what you've described. How does your organization coordinate with others? Is there a federation of organizations of some kind? Sure. So I've seen it happen in a number of different ways when I've been working in the field. When I was in South Sudan, there were regular weekly or bi-weekly meetings, uh, depending on, on the need to talk about different regions and who was able to respond to what, because there are a lot of efforts that are made at the country level and then at the field level not to duplicate services. And different actors have different levels of expertise and um, different things that they're specialized in responding to. Mm -hmm. What's unique for us is that we have unrestricted and independent financing. So when we're working in a country with other actors, we're able to often be flexible and potentially respond to health needs that other actors can't respond to because they're specifically funded for malaria, for example, or mm-hmm. specifically funded for a water and sanitation project. And we're able to to address things that, that aren't being addressed by other actors. So when you ask for donations, you don't ever ask for mission-specific donations necessarily? There have been times when um, there have, have we, we've issued a call for, mm, doubt, for yeah. donations like the earthquake in Haiti and um, some of the big natural disasters. But we're unique, and it's actually we've been cited in, in the media for this, in that when we have enough money, for a certain response, we stop taking donations. And we will let people know who want to donate that, in fact, uh, we have enough 
funds to respond to the earthquake in Haiti or enough funds to respond to the typhoon. And we ask people if they'd like to uh, donate into our uh, emergency fund, which is unrestricted for these underreported emergencies that we see in a number of countries. But does that happen very often? Is that because you guys have a very specific scope going in and then you can say, because I can imagine that in situations like that, it's really hard to anticipate what the need is, and the needs could just be piling up, you know, over the course of the um, the, the mission's time there. I've seen it happen regularly. So we mm-hmm. did it following the typhoon in the Philippines, and if my memory serves co- correctly, we did it as well for uh, the Haiti response. But we did do it following the the typhoon in the Philippines. Suzanne Ceresco, head of mission of Doctors Without Borders, 1999 Nobel Peace Prize winners. She spoke with us in the spring of 2016. Also on today's program, a rebroadcast of a conversation we had with a host of former Peace Corps volunteers back in 2006. Here's Carol Boss. Lauren Kohler is a graduate student at the University of New Mexico, earning both a law degree and a master's through Latin American studies. Joseph Garcia is in graduate school as well at the university and is the Peace Corps recruiter there. In fact, he's the first Latino recruiter for the Peace Corps at UNM. Arne Vandenberg is a teacher of history at Sandia Prep in Albuquerque. And Jan Vandenberg, his wife, is in admissions at the same school. And Dave Davenport from Santa Fe teaches law in Southeast Asia. You know, we actually have two different generations of Peace Corps volunteers here. David, Arne, and Jan were volunteers in the late 60s, just a few years after the Peace Corps was established. And Joseph and Lauren are more recent volunteers. And I'd be interested in hearing what drew you to the Peace Corps. What was the world like? Not only the world at large, but your own personal world as well. Dave? Yeah, I was in uh, Peace Corps Thailand from 1967 to 1971, and um, those were war years. The Vietnam War was going on, and I, um, I knew that I didn't want to go uh, into the Army if I could avoid it. I'd just gradu- I was graduating from college, and I didn't have any career goals at all. I didn't know what I was going to do, or uh, I, I simply knew that I wanted to do something, uh, something positive, and uh, I wanted to travel. And the Peace Corps uh, had at that time a, a, a kind of a training program that extended over two summers. It was an experimental thing that they didn't really f- continue to use, but it was over the summer after my junior year and the summer after my senior year at college I had intensive uh, language training and training as a, as a teacher. And uh, so when I went to Thailand, eventually I got to Thailand in late August of 1967, I was, I'd had probably six months of language training and I was very well prepared and felt uh, immediately comfortable in the country. And what about you, Lauren? I was a volunteer from 2002 through 2005. So how did you get yourself into the Peace Corps? Well, I think as we mentioned before, um, something that hasn't changed much is that a lot of students that are getting out of college are still not clear in their career goals, and I definitely was one of them. Um, I had studied environmental science um, as an undergraduate, and um, I I also had a lot of interest in it because my uncle um, was a Peace Corps volunteer in Costa Rica 
in the 70s. So I had heard a lot of secondhand stories about Peace Corps and what it meant to him. Um, so that definitely sparked my interest. And like many others, I wasn't sure of any sort of career path after that. And um, that's something that I actually gained from my experience was finding a, you know, a, a purpose for my life. And Oren? It's a lot of similarities, I think. Maybe one difference. I grew up in a, I grew up in a church that was very um, active early on in the world of development, Church of the Brethren. Really, as a, as a little kid, I think I got intrigued with the idea of, of other cultures and other countries. And then when Kennedy made his speech, definitely it, it to me said, you know, here is a point. This is something I've got to be involved in. I was in college at the time. But my brother preceded me, so it was a guarantee because he went to Nigeria a couple of years before I did. So really in the very formative years of Peace Corps. So it's sort of a natural. And Joseph, you grew up in rural South Texas. What inspired you <laughs> to join the Peace Corps? Well, I have to say my parents are the ones that inspired me based on their civil rights work in the 70s and 80s. My father was a Viet, uh, Vietnam veteran. He was, he was in 68. He was in Vietnam in 68 during the Tet Offensive and saw a lot of combat and came back to the States. And instead of having a negative effect on him that it kind of did in terms of different different areas, but he started organizing in South Texas uh, for voting rights, for vote, uh, people to be able to register to vote, people to vote safely in South Texas. And in 1985, defeated a... Um, a discriminatory election system in, in federal courts, um, implementing the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that was extended in 75. And through that experience, my brother and I were involved with, with our parents organizing, <clears throat> which kind of just trained me in terms of becoming a Peace Corps volunteer and, and taking on that kind of work. And you had experience, I know you had told me earlier, in construction and farming. Did that turn out to be valuable for you in terms of entering the Peace Corps? Certainly. Growing up in South Texas wasn't very much different from growing up uh, from serving in, in rural Paraguay. I grew up in a homogenous Mexican community where life revolved around the Catholic Church. I went to Paraguay where it was the same situation, a homogenous mestizo culture similar to the one I grew up in that revolved around the Catholic Church. Do you think the training the Peace Corps provided prepared you adequately or, or was it like stepping into the unknown? Jen? Um, it was very much stepping into the unknown. Actually, I was in an interesting time uh, in Peace Corps because I was in the first in-country training group. So before that point in 1968, in fact, even Arn's group, uh, they trained in the U.S. and then went to the country. Um, we shipped out of Philadelphia. We actually went to Philadelphia for dental appointments and that sort of thing, and then got on a plane and went to Ghana, not knowing at really anything about Ghana. And, um, and then we spent the next three months training in Ghana. The training itself was perhaps um, a better one than previously perhaps had been given, although Dave's experience sounds interesting with the two summers of language training. I, I felt my training was, was really excellent. We left Chicago and, you know, a couple of days later we were landing in Bangkok. And uh, I, was the, I, was the, I was one of the better language people in our group. So I had been selected by the Thai teachers to give a speech in Thai as we arrived. And so while we were all enthusiastic, as soon as the plane doors opened, 
uh, all of my friends said, Dave, you go first. <laughs> and so they sort of pushed me out, and I came down the steps of the plane, and uh, there was a Thai monk at the bottom of the of the stairs, and this guy dressed in with a shaved head, dressed in orange robes. And uh, during training, we'd been told that one way to uh, address a monk is to get down on the ground and bow very low three times. And it, this, this was the first issue I had, just steps off the plane. What do I do? Do I get down on the tarmac of this airport and bow to this guy? I didn't know how to do it. So I decided not to do that. I just uh, I gave him a polite why. It's a, it's a greeting where you put your two hands together and bow a little bit. And I did it in a very polite and formal way. And the monk was most pleasant. And uh, the training was great, but there were Every step you took, there were new things that came at you every day, and you had to sort of make decisions about how do I do this, how do I do that. People weren't going to tell you, and you had to read, learn to read people in, in a way that I, thought, I, I think is terribly important, very useful, and a lot of fun. This is Peace Talks, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Carol Boss, and we're talking with returned Peace Corps volunteers. More after this break. This is Peace Talks. I'm Carol Boss, and we're talking with returned Peace Corps volunteers Lauren Kohler, Joseph Garcia, Arne Vanderberg, Jan Vanderberg, and Dave Davenport. Let me ask you, how does the Peace Corps create peace? I think that Peace Corps may possibly be, through our reputation and the work we've done, could possibly be the salvation of U.S. foreign policy, in my opinion. Do you want to talk about that some more and tell us what you mean by that? From my study, experience, and research, I've realized that um, what's going on in the the world with the United States in regards to our foreign policy is that a situation has developed where a lot of people with very little international experience are at the forefront of U.S. foreign policy. They aren't educated in the history, the culture, the language of these countries, cultures, and thus, Peace Corps is and enveloped, or is is um, how do I say it? Char- characteristic of the lack of understanding, lack of education that that is needed. Lauren, to add on that, uh, I was actually in my rural community uh, in Panama when some an old man, a very weathered old man, walked down the path and said, "Do you know what your country did today?" They just declared war on Iraq. And, um, you know, that maybe in a very humiliating way was kind of an example of how how little um, 
we North Americans, as as citizens of the U.S., really uh, how little we know about other parts of the world, um, but that at the same time realizing that as volunteers, you are the face of America, of the U.S., um, and that in many ways you're left to do explaining for um, issues and situations that come up that are completely beyond your control. Um, so as Joseph says, in terms of diplomacy, um, volunteers are definitely doing a lot of uh, the grunt work in that respect. Arn. In 1999, when we went back after many years of not you know, being uh, on staff with Peace Corps and went back on staff with Peace Corps, we had lunch the week before we left. A small group of people had gone through the orientation for this. And we had lunch with the, um, the current director of Peace Corps at the time, Mark Guerin. And I remember we were sitting at the table, and he looked at me. I was an older guy, obviously, who had, you know, who had a lot of younger people sitting around me. And he said, so why, after doing all these other things you've done over the years, have you decided to go back and work in Peace Corps? Why not another aid agency? Why not something else? And I said in all honesty to him, I said, um, let's see. I love working with other cultures, and I love working internationally, and I actually think it's the place where I can do the least damage. And he looked at me and he said, what do you mean by that? And he, with the, I mean, it was good humor. And I said, because, here's what I feel, that we, we as a country with international development make so many mistakes. We have made more mistakes than we've had successes, I believe, in terms of international development. And those of us who have lived in other countries, you will see it time and time again, of the disasters we have created. Peace Corps has the advantage of helping numerous individuals learn to live and work with people at a very basic level where they are building communication and understanding between people. And if I happen to really screw up, I'm going to leave a fairly small hole in the puddle <laughs> when I leave. And, I, and I, I think there's merit in that. And Dave? Well, I wish that the Peace Corps, I mean, my, my hope for the Peace Corps is that it's able to expand into some Muslim countries, more Muslim countries. I really think we need uh, to uh, uh, get young and old, get, get Americans abroad learning about uh, other cultures, learning about other religions, learning other languages, and uh, uh, creating a, a, a much more positive uh, image of our country abroad. Um, the Peace Corps has, uh, I think, the original legislation of the Peace Corps enunciated three different goals, and Joseph could speak to this because he's a recruiter and I'm sure is better up on it than I, but the first is that um, uh, it's aimed at getting uh, Americans abroad and, and producing, pr providing work that is helpful to a host country, to an, another country. The second, as I remember, is that the uh, the, the presence of, of Peace Corps volunteers abroad is a way of um, giving people in foreign countries exposure to Americans and how we act and live. And, and the third is that the presence of or the having lived in a foreign country, uh, young Americans or Americans, not so young anymore, come back to, the, to this country with a much better understanding of other people in the world. So I think the Peace Corps, uh, those are still the goals of the Peace Corps, and I think uh, my own experiences even quite recently are that the, the Peace Corps uh, meets those very well. And uh, I think any almost any volunteer that, uh, that you'll talk to will say that what they get personally out of the Peace Corps is much greater than they 
were able to what what they gave anybody else while they were there. And I certainly believe that myself. But I also think that the Peace Corps does uh, does provide a useful service and does provide uh, real uh, significant help to uh, to people in foreign countries. Well, when you were all in the field, did you feel that your that were you believing that your efforts really mattered at the time when you were in the field? Were you were you able to see a big picture, or did it take? returning from the Peace Corps to appreciate your successes. Arn? Yeah, following on, I think, on, also on Dave's comments. Um, first of all, I think it's a big issue, and especially a big issue, for new volunteers. I think during the first year of a volunteer service, many, many volunteers go through a real self-questioning period of saying, what am I really doing here? Especially volunteers, I think, sometimes who, before they came in, saw themselves as maybe international development professionals. That was a career they wanted to pursue. They wanted to get into public health. They wanted to get into politics, but international development. And they end up there oftentimes just saying, what am I really doing? It's not clear. I don't think I'm going to have any effect. I can't see where it's going. Um, so I think for many of us, we to be successful, and I, when I say be successful, I mean to live successfully in your community, communicate effectively with people, and then to feel sort of satisfied with your position, you really have to personalize it. And you have to get down to your relationships with individuals in the community, people that you are working with on a day-by-day basis, and turn it into a small picture. And then, in, and then in my own mind, when you take that small picture and multiply it by the whatever it is, number of volunteers, that you now have had serve in all these years, which is you know something over 100,000. I don't know the figure these days. But then I think you begin to say, yeah, it's having an effect. But I do believe, and I think as Dave had said earlier, uh, I do believe that the sort of effect becomes very much one of recognizing that in some instances you actually leave with something that is concrete, a student who has been inspired, a building that was put up, uh, something that was improved, and you can see that. But in more cases, the fact that people there now understand that, in this case, Americans are maybe not what they thought they were, that the American looks at it and says, you know, I think I've helped them to understand that who we are, and then return to the U.S. and begin to have some impact in your local, you know, in your local area and on the attitudes and views of people back here. How about a couple of stories about the impact that your work had on the people that you lived and worked with and and the community? Lauren? Yeah, actually, um, I I just finished in June 2005 of my service, um, and in December I returned. And at the time when I was in my community in Panama, we had um, uh, submitted a proposal and received funding to build a local community center. Um, a, mun- a municipal office. And so in December, um, we had inaugurated it in June, right before I had um, uh, my close of service. So when I returned in December, obviously I went back and saw the building. Everything was great. And I was asking somebody about that day, and they were um, telling me about how well everything went, and then stopped and asked and said, Lorena, were you were you there that day? Had you already left? or?" And I guess the funny thing was, was that I actually, you know, got up and spoke at the inauguration, helped cut the ribbon, and um, 
the ironic but wonderful part about that was that they didn't really remember if I was there, which meant that it was something so important to them and that they felt so much of a part of that it wasn't something that someone came in and implanted and then left, that it was actually um, integral in the community's um, development process. And that was one of the most wonderful things, wonderful feelings, that it wasn't what I was doing, it was what people were motivated to do for themselves. Dave. Yeah, uh, I was um, speaking about impact, uh, what impact we had. Um, If I may speak to my more recent Peace Corps experience, I went back to Thailand uh, last year uh, with a a portion of the Peace Corps called the Crisis Corps, which is designed for former Peace Corps volunteers um, in times of crisis to go back and help the countries where they had served. And so uh, I went back with several others to Thailand following the tsunami. And uh, the, uh, the western coast of Thailand lost a lot of people. And uh, it wasn't as badly hit as uh, Sri Lanka or as Indonesia, but it's still there were thousands of people who were killed. And so uh, we were assigned to uh, a refugee camp in a little village uh, that had lost perhaps half. Several thousand people were killed in the village by the, by the wave waves. And um, we were originally supposed to be doing uh, building houses. And uh, I've had some construction experience, and so it seemed a natural. But um, when we got there, this was three months after the tsunami had occurred, it turned out that there were tons of other groups who were doing exactly that. In fact, the Thai military was there. They were like the, the our Army Corps of Engineers or something equivalent to it. And they had all sorts of equipment. They had 3,000 soldiers pumping up these houses for, for villagers. And we, you know, we really didn't have a, a job. And uh, so I, living in this camp with 100 families who'd lost their, their houses and, and lost many members of their families, I started going around the camp with a young Thai woman who was working on her master's degree in psychology. And uh, because I spoke Thai, um, I would chat with people and and just interview them with her. And one of the things I began to notice sitting in the the rooms with these families, the, these were people jammed in little tiny rooms, you know, 13 feet by 18 feet. All their possessions, what possessions they had, were on the floor. Uh, the, the walls were terribly flimsy. There was no place to hang anything. And I began to realize that, that while there were government agencies providing food and, and shelter, they'd sort of left these people in their rooms, and they were terribly depressed. Uh, the, the rains, the monsoons came soon after we arrived. Everything was getting soaked. And I realized that for a very small amount of money, and uh, with a little bit of effort, our group could put together shelves and clothes hangers and simple things uh, to help people store their, their belongings off the floor, off the damp floors. And so um, we got a little money together and started a, a little manufacturing process. And we built uh, shelves. Every, we put in every room in the camp um, a long eight-foot shelf with a clothes rod underneath it. And we built cabinets and uh, bookshelves and shelves and uh, it it was it really was marvelous these were these were people were in in really terrible shape and i honestly had the sense that we were doing something that that in a small way made their day-to-day lives a lot better i i felt very happy about it how have you incorporated your peace corps experience into your life how has it become a part of your life 
now. And also when I ask that, that, that also means how um, it has become part of your spirit as well. Lauren? Yeah, I think that uh, coming back, there was a reverse culture shock, which probably everybody else can relate to. And um, I noticed that I felt like I enjoyed having some of that anonymity again, because living in a small rural community, uh, many times you feel like your life is in a fishbowl. So while it was good um, to have that kind of anonymity, at the same time, it was really scary looking at how people don't really see one another the way that they do in many other parts of the world. Um, and so I think one of one of the things that has been important for me is to not forget that, to not allow myself to completely retransform and to always see people and be very, um, I guess, just try to be the old me that was in Panama and continue that because it's so easy to get sucked into this kind of passive-aggressive um, attitude that that affects many of us just as being as products of the society. And I think just really learning to take things in stride and being very um, upfront and very, you know, intimate, socially intimate with other people um, has been one really good thing I've taken back here with me. All right. I think there is a side that is sort of, and maybe takes off from what Lauren was saying, that I think in some ways it can be a little bit alienating um, for people coming back because I think because you are having such an intense experience and you do feel, I think it's real, that you develop a different view of the world than most of your neighbors and people you know once you get back to the U.S., and it is a perspective you cannot get rid of. You will always carry that perspective. So, for example, if you are sitting here and you hear of something happening in a town that you lived in 10 years ago, you can no longer view that town as simply, oh, it's too bad those things happened, tsunamis, bombs, whatever it happens to be. You, you know those people. You know what it is like. And it, that experience and that perspective can have a tendency to alienate you from people who never had the opportunity to do that. Joseph, how how's the recruiting business these days? You are the um, recruiter for the Peace Corps on the University of New Mexico campus, and and how does someone get a sense of whether they'll be um, a good Peace Corps volunteer? Well, to answer your first question, uh, recruitment is going very well here at UNM, um, and I think around the country. Um, in terms of finding out about Peace Corps, um, go to the website, uh, peacecorps.gov, or the 1-800 number, 1-800-424-8580, to uh, contact their local re- recruiter. Um, there are offices throughout the country, every major city, that have uh, recruiters as well as uh, major universities have programs like the one I'm a part of. Is it a hard sell these days for young people? I don't think it is because, um, unfortunately, we live in a, a very, how do I say it, unpredictable world. And and what's interesting now is that there are movements around the country that are trying, anti-war movements that are, that are, that are being confronted with a situation that people with socioeconomic backgrounds, unsimilar to their own, are saying, what other option is there? So Peace Corps is slowly being promoted as an option to military service. So the Peace Corps uh, seems to be a young person's opportunity. Is it appropriate thing for people of middle and um, and past middle years? I see some heads going, yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Jan. I mean, you know, they have a lifetime of experience, and um, 
And in every program that we've worked in, there have been older volunteers that have just been wonderful. Uh, I understand, too, that a lot of people these days are sort of, uh, after they've had, have gotten through college or maybe in a couple of years of grad school or have had their first job or looking around and saying, is this really all? I mean, is this where I want to be? It's a great opportunity to shift gears and learn about a whole new uh, area of the world and about new things about yourself. And so uh, I think, it's, I think it's, it's a great thing for people of any age. Arn. I had a, a woman in a, a staging, one of the orientations before they took off. I think I can't, it was one of the Latin American countries. I can't remember which one years ago. And it was, the staging was held in Miami, Florida, and we were in a hotel, and she was sitting at the back of the room. And I was saying what I thought was very important, you know, and, and expected everybody to be listening to me. Uh, but we're also always are very alert for people who may not, who are, have a lot of anxiety or feeling not so well or something. And I, she kept nodding off. She was, I would guess, in her 50s. And she kept nodding off. And I didn't take it too personally, really. But at the end, as we broke up, I just went back. And she said, I hope you don't take this personally. She said, but, you know, this is the fifth time I've been through this. <laughs> and I said, really? And she said, yeah. She said, I... My kids are raised. They think I'm crazy. She said, I will be a Peace Corps volunteer until I can no longer walk. And she says, it's a terrific way for me to meet other people. I have the most interesting jobs in the world. I meet the most interesting people. I get to travel to places I would never go. And I have a terrific health, and po health policy. So she said, why would I not do this? And I, to me, that's like sort of capsulizes it for me in terms of, uh, yeah, it's a great thing to do even as, a, as an older person. Yeah, that's so great. I want to thank all of you, um, Lauren Kohler, Joseph Garcia, Arn Vanderberg, and Jan Vanderberg, and Dave Davenport. Thanks for being with us on Peace Talks today. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thanks. You can hear two hour-long programs about the Peace Corps on our website, one produced in 2006 and one produced in 2011 by Amy Mayer. Just go to peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Go there and look for the 2006 and 2011 seasons, and you'll find those episodes for sure. That's also where to find links to all of the programs in our series going back to 2002. You can hear programs streaming there, download episodes, order CDs of many of them, sign up for a monthly newsletter, a free podcast. And it's where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to the nonprofit media organization that produces this particular program separate and apart from your public radio station, all at peacetalksradio.com. In addition to support from listeners like you, we get support from KUNM at the University of New Mexico and from a Spinal Health and Movement Center and Ruben Ramirez in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. Nola Daves Moses is the executive director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm -hmm.